There's been two times in my life that I think thus far stand out more than any other. Two times it kind of really served as these huge wake-up calls. I shared one of them a few weeks back when I talked through uh, after graduating high school, intent on setting the direction of my own life, I found myself with my family face down on a dirt road in Nigeria being held at gunpoint. And as we were down there, all I thought of was, I've, I've wasted my life. Everything that I've sat and I've worked for is utterly worthless. And if a bullet hits the back of my head, all the things that I worked for, I have nothing to show for it. And it was this wake-up call, and I felt like I saw life clearly. I think the, the, the next time was um, April 14th of last year when I was in Orlando at dinner, um, and I get a phone call that my 32-year-old brother uh, had died, just passed out of nowhere. And it was at that time as well, like... Everything that I felt like I lived for my whole life at that point in time just felt really just just empty and worthless. And I just looked and it was as if I could just see life clearly. What I know about all of us here in this room is that maybe you haven't been held at gunpoint. Maybe you haven't had anybody close to you pass but you have had these unique times in life where life is just more clear. You've had these times where you just wake up, right? We all have these times. If it's not personally something that takes place with us, it's because of something that we see in the news a few weeks ago, a massacre that took place in Orlando that just causes us to mourn and to grieve and to ask Ask why, or if not that, then you think back a few months in a shooting that took place where people gathered around God's word like this, and somebody came in and murdered them. You think about Boko Haram and the tragedies that they're a a part of. You, You think of the bombing that just took place in Bangladesh, all of these things kind of come up and they call regardless of how tight or but look at the lives that we live and regardless of how tight our budget or finances were, regardless of how tight that we felt like our, our time was, we just looked at life through these new lenses and we saw that we had money to spare, time to spare. We saw that Life is, is terribly small and unfulfilling when it's all about us. But when we take our eyes off of ourselves and we look, we just see how bright and promising life can be when we look and are reminded that, we, that we're not to live these lives just for ourselves. We all have these wake-up calls of sorts. Now, I'm not primarily concerned with what you feel when you wake up, I think that's the same uh, uh, across the board. We all have this sense of there's something that I have to do. What I'm primarily concerned with is why it is that we need to be woken up in the first place. That as we go through life, it's easy to just slip into this like state of sleep and apathy where we only care about ourselves and our comfort. And the crazy thing is, it's not anything that we have to try to do. It just happens. Life goes on. We get comfortable. and We just kind of slip into this place where we live for enjoyment. Right? A year ago, this was blasted all uh, across the news. An earthquake hit Nepal 23,000 people were hurt, 9,000 were killed. It was all over the place. How long did it take for you to forget about that one? Or closer to home here, for those of us that live close, in the sh- after Christmas, a 15-year-old boy was found shot in the streets less than a mile from here. The last Sunday of January, we gather to worship 
And at 8 a.m., a high-speed chase took place two blocks from here, and a grandma and her son were killed. And we talked about it as a church, and we prayed about it as a church, and it was heavy on our hearts. But how long did it take for us to forget about that? If you're anything like me, it doesn't take long. Our hearts just kind of slip into this place where we're apathetic. Right? That as we talk about apathy, apathy is not the absence of emotion, right? So it's not like if our hearts are full of feelings, that an apathetic heart is one that's empty. There is no heart that's empty of emotions. Apathy is this. When your heart is so full of self-love that it crowds out the ability to love anybody else. And the crazy thing is for all of us, it comes so naturally and easily. I don't know about you, but I don't want to live a life like this. I don't want to live a life where I spend all of my time focused on my personal comfort and work so hard to achieve things that the moment that a tragedy strikes and I wake up, I see how worthless it is, but then I fall right back into the same trap and feel myself only really being alive after these intermittent tragedies hit. I don't want apathy to rule my life. I want to be ruled and driven so that I can live for something else, something that provides fulfillment. And the beauty is that as sure as all of us have this apathy that just kind of finds its way into our hearts, there is an answer. And God provides that answer in his word. And that's why we're going through the book of Jonah. So if you would turn with me to the book of Jonah as we close out our time. Shane, can you... Fix that. It feels like there's a lot of, I don't know, wind or something. The Holy Spirit is descending. Jonah. Jonah chapter 3. Hear that? Uh, Here's where we are in the book. Jonah 1 is all about the fact that we serve a God that speaks and he can't be ignored. God talks first. God won't be ignored. Chapter two is all about the fact that God chases people and God shows his compassion in the fact that he chases and pursues people that don't deserve an ounce of it. God is after failures of which we all have beyond a shadow of a doubt proven ourselves to be and the good news that God's trying to chase down. God's not trying to chase us down to speak a word of condemnation. God's trying to chase us down to speak a word of compassion and remind us that even when our weak prayers meet a willing savior, we get forgiveness, we get redemption. It's not about the depths of our sorrow, but the depths of God's compassion. And it seems like at the end of Jonah chapter 2, Jonah gets it. And for those of us that are familiar with the story, we can look at chapter 3 and think that it's a, a success. And I don't want us to stop there, right? If we look and think this story is a story all about obedience, then we'll miss out on the main point disobedience to God is always a problem, but I want you to know this. Obedience to God is not always the answer. God's concerned with something much deeper than just the way that we comply. God's concerned with our heart and how we feel. So here's what's going to take place. We're going to look at Jonah's wrong feelings. They're the same ones that we all have. We're going to dive down and see where those stem from, and they stem from wrong sight. And then we're going to look and see the cure to apathy. Jonah 3, starting at verse 1, and we'll read through 4, 1, and it says this. Then the word word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call God out against it, the message that I tell you, stop right there. Isn't it so good that we serve a God of second chances? Jonah has failed miserably. 
God goes after him to chase him and get him. And after God gets him back, God doesn't just sideline him, but God speaks the exact same words and gives him that same call. So just as we go through this time, be reminded of the fact that we serve a God that specializes in resurrection and redemption. So if you're here and you feel like you're a failure or you've messed up or you're hopeless or my marriage is beyond hope or I had these dreams to do these things for God and I messed up and I feel like that it's all be reminded of the fact that God is a God of second chances. Christians may fall on hard times, but for a Christian, we're never hopeless. We're never hopeless. Verse 3, so Jonah had arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breath. Jonah began to go into the city. He went a day's journey. He called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God They called for a past and fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word of the Lord reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and ashes, and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, nor herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink on water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. And who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they returned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Four one, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. This is not a story about Jonah disobeying God and then obeying God as if that's success and that's what God wants. This is a story about a man who, even though he obeys God, doesn't have the right heart, gives God the type of obedience that isn't the answer to anything. And so the first thing that I want us to know is this. Apathy puts us at odds with God. Apathy puts us at odds with God. God is not just a God that's concerned with your compliance. He's a God that's concerned about relationship. So even if you comply with God but have contempt in your heart, it does you no good. The right actions with the wrong attitude is still sinful. And this is what's highlighted here in this text. Look, Jonah obeys God. And I just want you to see what takes place here. God tells him to go and proclaim this unpopular message in this big town. Jonah has no team. It's just him. And he walks through and it says that The city takes three days to walk through. At the end of the first day, Jonah proclaiming this message that God's mad, it causes this whole city to repent. I want you to see just how amazing that is. One small act of obedience has the potential in the hands of God to change an entire city. So much so that this town serves as a model of what repentance looks like. So verse six goes on and says this, that the king gets up, takes off his robe, stands up off of his throne and puts on sackcloth and sits down in ashes. That really doesn't mean much to us, but think of this. When folks get married, What the bride does is she puts on a beautiful dress, has a face full of makeup, so everybody looks at her and is reminded this day, it's not about the groom, it's about her. 
This day is a day where all eyes are on you. This is a day where you've dressed yourself up to show how admirable and worthy you are of our thoughts and affection. So what a king does is a king is constantly clothed in all of these robes so that everybody sees his worth. This king is so convicted by what God has said that he stands up and he takes off his robes and he puts on common robes. He steps off of the throne and and says, I don't need to be in control. And he sits down in ashes to symbolize his utter worthlessness before God. This is what a repentant heart does. It's reminded that I'm utterly worthless in the sight of God based on the way that I've acted. And the only plea that I have is for God to have mercy. Look here at the end of verse 9. He says this, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Repentance says God doesn't owe me salvation at all. It's not that I've done all of these good things and now God surely got to forgive me of my sin. It's no, I've done such wrong that I'm just going to put my fate in the hand of God. And who knows? Maybe. The pagans in this book serve as a model for what the people of God should do. And the beautiful thing is that at the end of verse 10, it makes a point to remind us. No, 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 listen. God actually responded to their prayer for forgiveness. So there's two things that we see here. One is is this. You never know the outcome of your obedience. You never know that. Jonah, through this one small act of obedience, saw a nation change. And we see the same thing throughout the whole Bible. Right? Paul does the same thing as he's in Athens. And he's provoked because he sees a city full of people that don't worship the true God. And so what he does is he just spends time and he talks to folks. And God will use that to give him the biggest stage in the town to proclaim what God has done and to see folks saved. Not just in the Bible, but we see it throughout history. Martin Luther King Jr. grew up in a middle class household. Well educated. After college, he's pastoring and he hears about this thing called the Montgomery Boycott. And he feels compelled. We have to be a part of this. And that helped to start and launch much of the civil rights movement that we see here today. Five years ago, three families moved here to the West End and just felt like God's called us to come here and to be here. We're not sure what he's going to do. And five years later, this takes place. You never know what takes place with one small act of obedience. Don't worry about the size of it. Be faithful to the ordinary things that God has called you to do. And they have great potential to do much good. While we never know the outcome of our faithfulness to God, here's one thing that we do know. We always know the outcome of genuine repentance. And it's forgiveness. The reason why each week we stand up here and pray and then go from a different portion of scripture to talk about God's grace and compassion. You saw it three different spots in the Bible is to remind us of the fact this is how God always responds to repentance. So for those of us that find ourselves gripped with the utter worthlessness of our sin, we don't have to be concerned. We don't have to pray like he prayed and said, well, who knows what God will do? We know what God will do because he said it here in his word. He'll forgive. Even now, because of what he's done in Christ, anybody who has a sense of their utter worthlessness in the sight of God can right now say, Father, forgive me. And it's clear how God will respond. Lest I make too much of a big deal about the obedience of Jonah. The main thing that we see here is not his actions, but his attitude. According to Luke 15, when people repent and God gives 
uh, and God gives forgiveness, it says that the angels in heaven rejoice. Everybody's celebrating, except for Jonah. He's angry and he's mad. What an apathetic heart does is it puts us at odds with God even if we obey. Apathy is light. It can float very well in streams of obedience. And we can think that just because we're obeying God that we're good with God, and that's not the the case at all. Here's what it is to be at odds. Here's probably the best picture that I, I, I could find. Wes shot this to me this past week. This weekend, we celebrate the 4th of July, freedom, right, what's been done here. In 1852, Frederick Douglass writes this about the 4th of July. What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer a day that reveals to him more than all Other days in the year, the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham. Your boasted liberty and unholy license. Your national greatness, swelling vanity. Your sound of rejoicing are empty and heartless. Your denunciation of tyrants, brass-fronted arrogance. Your shout of liberty and equality, hollow mockery. Your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgiving, with all your religious parade and solemnity, are to him a mere smokescreen, fraud and deception, impiety and hypocrisy, a thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. There is not a nation on the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of the United States at this very hour. Wow. The same event took place while a group of people are celebrating. You have a man that looks and sees, wait a minute, this is an injustice. You shouldn't rejoice in this. It's hypocrisy. In the case of Frederick Douglass, He was right. And I do want want to say this with such a heavy quote. Remember, Christians are people that are full of hope. So we can look at this room and be reminded of the fact that there is hope. We have actually come a long way since that time. With the climate of the world that we're in right now, it's easy to be driven to hopelessness and to not remember That in 1852, this never would have happened. So we rejoice in the fact that we have come a long way as we look in here, but as we're reminded of what takes place outside of these walls, we know that we're still not home yet. There's still a lot of work to to be done, but this is a, a great place to start. But all that that quote brings up is that something can take place and people So be at odds over the same event. In the case of Frederick Douglass, he was right. In Jonah's case, though he accuses God of the same hypocrisy and injustice, he was wrong. So I want you to see this. God wants more from you. Let me just be abundantly clear. God wants more from you than your obedience. He wants more than compliance. Christianity is not an employee-employer relationship where the concern is just that you do the things that God says. Christianity is about you sharing God's heart. It's about you having his heart. It's about you being in relationship with him. Obedience is not the cure to apathy. You cannot obey it away because a compliant heart can still have contempt towards the person that gave them the command. And God exposes that here in Jonah. What's going to take place, though, is for the rest of this time, God isn't going to be concerned with Jonah's obedience at all. 
So for those of us that thought this is he disobeyed and now he obeyed, God, God, God throws all, all that out. His primary concern is going to be Jonah's emotions in the way that he feels. Here's where we get messed up. We decide what to do with our feelings before we even know why we feel them. Emotions aren't things that are meant to be ignored and done away with. There's something that are meant to be explored. And what takes place is if you really start to dig down into why it is that you're mad, why it is that you're sad, why are you hurt, then at the bottom of that, what you'll find is what you really value has been uh, attacked. And this is where, I mean, just a side note, this is where counseling is so helpful. You know, I know some of us have grown up and we've heard black people don't go to counseling. I want you to know that's, that's awful. Counseling, counseling has saved my life. It saved my marriage. It saved this church. So I just want you to know it's, it's a very, very good thing and a useful tool. And so here's what, what God does. God's going to dive down. And what we're going to see is that at the heart of these wrong feelings lie this wrong sight. Apathy, apathy distances us from God. But the next thing that it does, this self-love, it distorts our sight of God distorts our, our vision. Verse 2, right? So Jonah's mad and he prays. The first prayer is one of rejoicing. This next one is a one of, re, of rebuke towards God. He says this, and he prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. It sounds like a compliment, but it's really a complaint. And here we really see Jonah's heart and why it was that he fled. Apathy, this self-love, it's so deceptive. It'll have you looking at the perfections of God and viewing them as problems for you. It distorts your sight of God and the things that are worthy to be praised of God you see that they attack the things in your life that you value the most. And now a perfect God becomes a problem for you because he's perfectly good. It's senseless. But hear what he says. Jonah is a guy that knows his time well. Here's a little bit of context. Jonah lived in the 8th century BC. 2 Kings 14, you can go back there and read. Jonah prophesies to a king that's wicked that God is going to prosper Israel. Even in the midst of their rebellion and their badness, God's going to make sure that they still thrive, right? At the same time, Hosea and Amos are prophesying to Jonah, and what they say is Jonah, or or they're prophesying to Israel, and what they say is this, Listen, y'all have to turn and repent. If you don't repent, God is going to judge you. So you have a wicked and prosperous Israel that is not repenting. And so God's going to judge them. But at the same time, Jonah knows his God well. And so God tells him, listen, I want you to go and proclaim to Nineveh that they're going to be they're going to be destroyed. Hear this. When God wants to punish somebody, do you know what he does? He just does it. If he's really bent on condemning somebody, he just does it. There is no, you're going to get a spanking when your dad gets home so that you can appeal. He just does it. Do you know what? God 
does when he warns people of judgment? He warns them so that they'll repent. Jeremiah 18, you don't have to turn there. It's going to be on the screen. Hear this. God says this. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break it down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. Listen, Jonah is not somebody with bad theology. Jonah is a Jonah has very good theology, and he knows Israel is prospering. They're evil. They're not going to repent. God's going to judge us. How does God judge us? By powerful, wicked nations that he rises up. God told me to go to them to tell them that they're going to be judged. And he knows, no, if I tell them and they repent of their sin, God's not going to destroy. If God doesn't destroy them, then they're going to be okay. And if we don't repent, God's going to use them to destroy us. So listen, if I run and I don't do what God has called me to do, then they're not going to repent. If they don't repent, God's going to destroy them. If God destroys them, it's good for us. And thus, he uses all of this right doctrine and theology about God to justify disobedience to God. Apathy, this self-concern, this concern where when talking about the salvation of people, Jonah's mad and the first words that come out of his mouth are in verses 2 to 3 and he'll use the word I or my eight times to show that at the end of the day, Jonah is only concerned and primarily concerned with his personal comfort. And where personal comfort is primary, God's will is always going to be a problem because the grid that he thinks through is not your personal present comfort, but your eternal happiness, which often comes at the expense of our personal comfort. Yeah, does that make sense? Obedience doesn't cure apathy. And hear this. Right theology doesn't cure apathy. Right theology in the bad hands is only ammunition to justify disobedience to God. Is a scalpel good or bad? Well, it depends on whose hands it's in. If it's in a doctor, it's good. If it's in the hands of a blind man that's drunk, it's pretty bad to everybody that's close to him. Listen. Obedience to God became incredibly more difficult after I graduated from from seminary. Do you know why? Because before I was just a dumb sinner. Now I was a smart sinner. Now with this wicked heart that I had, do you know what I did? I used all this knowledge that I had to be able to find loopholes to justify disobedience and to calm and quiet a heart that should have been convicted by God's sin. Right theology is a very, very good thing but it can also be a dangerous thing. This is one reason why. You don't have to go to seminary to know God. You don't have to study in a school to really be able to know his word, but it is important that you learn God's word with somebody else that can call you out on the hypocrisy that you try to justify in your your heart. There's no virtue in saying, well, I came to these conclusions all by myself. It's easy to be self-deceived. Jonah, in isolation, comes up with this way to justify his disobedience to God. 
an apathetic heart is never going to see God as perfect in the same way that a crooked level will never hang a straight picture. It's always going to lean to one side or the other. How many of you all have heard an objection to who God is? Some folks say, man, God is just too harsh. The Old Testament seems like it's at odds with the new. Jesus is nice and kind, but God is big, bad, and mean. How many of y'all have ever heard that? You know, the only problem is that the only way that you can come to that conclusion is if you don't read your Bible. (laughs) Throughout the the Bible and to Jonah's own admission, he's not frustrated because God's too hard. He's saying, God, I know what you're like, and you let people off of the hook. You don't give people what their sins deserve if they turn and repent. The Bible is full, not of God pouring down his wrath. The Old Testament is full of how could God not kill Jonah, who was willing to let an entire nation of people perish so that him and his people could be okay? How could God not kill David, who was the king of God's people, and he murdered somebody because he got that man's wife pregnant? How could God not kill Abraham? How could God not kill Israel? The Old Testament is a case study of how could God not do to them what he should have done? This is what God's known for. When God reveals himself, he shows that he's a God that's quick to forgive. Slow to wrath. So by the time that God does pour out his wrath, it's rarely on the like first time. You see how patient that he's been and how much it's built up. And a wicked heart is going to take these instances of God's judgment and view those as that as if that's the totality of his character. And they're going to gloss over the many times that God has been gracious and patient. Or they're going to look at God's grace and patience for somebody else and be frustrated with it when just a chapter ago they were praising God for the fact that God saved them. These wrong feelings, an apathetic heart, stems from this wrong sight of God, this wrong picture of who he is. What's the cure to that? Look at what God does. God does not address Jonah's obedience, but he goes down and he starts to talk about his attitude. Verse 4, and the Lord God said, do you do well to be angry? Or God said, Jonah, you mad? Verse 5. Jonah went out of the city, right? So God speaks, Jonah ignores. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. He's still intent on God should destroy the city. So look at what God made it. God is so patient and kind. Now the Lord God had appointed a plant and made it to come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah, who was exceedingly mad, now look here. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God had appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God had appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and says, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Jonah, you mad? Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. 
and there God has him. Here's what takes place. Jonah goes from burning hot to glad because he had shade to literally burning hot. His emotions fluctuate, not because of anything that took place with anybody else, but strictly based on his comfort. When God didn't do what he wanted, Jonah was mad. When God did what he wanted in a way that made Jonah's life better, Jonah was glad. And then when God came through and took away that shade, Jonah was mad. And so what God does is he exposes the fact that Jonah is so fickle and shallow that at the heart of all the emotions, right, you dig deep and find out what's at the heart. At the heart of it is Jonah's comfort. His comfort and his ease of life, that's his God. And when God attacks that, Jonah's mad. The irony of this all is, is this. Jonah's mad because God didn't destroy a nation. And then he gets mad because God did destroy a plant. Jonah's fine with God destroying just so long as God does it on his terms. And so at the end of the day, we see somebody that doesn't sit down and repent and acknowledge that God is on the throne But Jonah is a man that sits on the throne, and as he looks to to God, he wants God to take off his robe, to put on an apron, and to serve him. And that's wicked. That's a life that sees life through the lens of what's personally comfortable for me. And the question is, what makes you burning hot? When do you get mad, mad enough to fight? Is it when somebody disrespects you? You go down and what you'll find is that there's a value there of admiration and respect. And if anybody attacks that, then they're going to feel my wrath. What makes you glad? Is it when people... Show love to you, acknowledge you, praise you. You dig down and what you'll find there is the same heart that values admiration and respect. Apathy is when a self-love crowds out the ability to love anybody else. And the only way that it's going to be fixed or cured is with perspective. That when we truly see as God sees, then, then, then we'll feel what God feels. And then we'll act how he acts. But until we see what he sees, as he sees, until our vision is correct, we'll never feel what he feels and we'll never act like he acts. Here, what's great about this story is that this book ends with God's word. So God's going to say this thing, and then God's going to drop the mic and walk off stage. Because there's, no, there's nothing else that you can say. Look here at verse 10. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in the night and perished in the night. God said, Jonah, you didn't even do anything. It's not even like you're a gardener that put in all of this hard work to make sure that this plant grows up and now you're mad because all of your hard work is is gone. Your compassion, your joy, your love is completely self-directed. And then he goes on and says this. John, you, you have pity for this plant. You're mad because of this plant and God says this. And should not I pity Nineveh? That great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left. Now, that could be two things. It could be 
people that are spiritually ignorant. Or God could say, in this town, there's 120,000 little kids that don't even know their right hand from their left. And God's saying, you're so intent, you want that destroyed. Through God's eyes, what God's saying is, all of those are image bearers. I made all of them. And listen, wrong decisions don't strip people of their dignity. They were made for a purpose. And sin has robbed people of their God-given purpose of being able to relate to God. And Jonah is content with these people dying and going to hell because it'll cause him an inconvenience. Lest we look at Jonah and think, I would never do anything like that. Jonah actively ran from God's will. Passively running from God's will will produce the same result. You and I know that there are people in our lives that God has called us to. People that one small act of obedience, of sharing the gospel, the good news of the fact that this gracious and compassionate God didn't just stand off and tell us his will, but he came down and he gave us a visual picture in Jesus of what his compassion looked like. So Jonah, out of concern for what may take place, is willing to send these people to their doom, where Jesus, on the cross, actively being destroyed by people, is filled with compassion on a love for other people crowds out this self-love. And on the cross, as he's actively being murdered, do you know what he does? He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't pray for revenge. He prays for forgiveness for the murderers. Listen, his death is not like the death of good men. MLK, who was shot for a good cause and didn't see it coming. JFK, shot, didn't see it coming. Abraham Lincoln shot, didn't see it come, coming. That's not Jesus. Jesus died by the very hands of people that he made and kept breath in their lungs so that they would grow up and be the ones that actively nailed him to the cross. And as he did it, he saw it coming, but he was so filled with compassion that he prayed that God would forgive them. That's somebody that values God's creation. So much so that comfort and self-interest didn't stand in the way at all of him fulfilling the very thing that God had called him to do. And when we truly see as God sees, we'll feel as God feels. This is what it means to put our faith in Jesus and to follow him. It means that we believe what he did, and the virtue in his self-sacrifice for our sins so much that we repent of this me-centered way that we live our lives and say for the rest of my life, this is going to be the path that I follow. Do you know what this looks like? Practical, very Grass, very ground level. It looks like when you're deciding on where you're going to live, crime statistics don't have the final say. They have a say, but God gets the last word. What I'm not saying is that everybody needs to move into the hardest of places. But what I am saying is there's some people in this room that need to do that. English Avenue that's right up the road here is a spot where I want the crime statistics are high, higher than any other place in the city. 
And you should be smart. And that should play a factor. But do you know what else is in English Avenue? People that God created. People that are ignorant of God's great compassion. People that need people that are so driven by compassion that they'll follow the example of their Savior and go into a place where they know there's trouble coming for the sake of somebody else and not for themselves. That's what compassion looks like. That's what God's trying to produce in Jonah, and that's what God's trying to produce in us. Not a group of people that merely comply, but a group of people that share God's compassion and have his heart. A group of people who, like Jonah, let God have the first word. He sets the agenda and the course of action, but they let God have the last word as well. It's fine to converse with God just so long as you try to remember that God has the last word. Talk to him, share your troubles, your concerns, and your burdens, but let God have the last word. Let him be the one that dictates where we go. Not our comfort, not our pain, not our security, not our stability, but his compassion. A great man once said that all that's needed in the world for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. My prayer is that we as a church would be so compelled by the compassion of God that we would use our lives to do something, that this would serve as our wake-up call. And instead of letting our dreams lead the way, that we would say, God, what would you have me to do? And where we find it hard, we would discuss with God, but that we would let him have the last word. Let's pray. Oh, Father, ah, we're grateful that when we let you have the last word, we can be reminded that you have something to say, some words of compassion or grace that fuel us and give us great courage. God, I pray that that would be what's done here, that based on your word, we would be those ah, that are filled with courage and boldness to do your will. Give us grace. Remind us to look to Jesus, to be reminded by the truth that, Lord, even if we give this life away because of what Christ has done on our behalf, we have another one coming where there will be no pain or sorrow or angst. So help us to spend this life well. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.